Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Well, August is here. Seafair is reaching its culmination. The smell of jet fuel is wafting over Genesee Park at Lake Washington. We are visiting today with David Williams, the executive director of the Hydroplane and Raceboat Museum in Kent. Today we're going to Oh, hopefully get some insight on Seafair Sunday and hydroplanes and racing from someone who knows all about it. David, welcome. Thanks for dropping by today to talk hydroplanes on Seafair Weekend. Oh, Gary, it is just a blast to be here. I always enjoy talking with you. I'm just, I'm worried we're not going to keep it under half an hour. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to try and do that. But uh, otherwise, people can go to the internet and look up more hydroplane trivia on the museum. Might as well. I, or just come down to the pits and look for us. Yeah, you guys always bring a couple of boats out to, to display them and talk about the museum and the history of boating. And that's what we're going to try and cover here. Before I forget, so I said your executive director, the Unlimited Hydroplane and Race Boat Museum. Its building is in Kent, but you guys pull your stuff out uh, and bring it around the, the state, but the country too, right? We do. We we take it all across the country. I think we've been as far south as Gunnersville, Alabama, as far uh, north as Buffalo, New York. We've been to Hawaii. We've been down to San Diego. So we cover the country. And, and right now, don't make me count, I think I've got seven boats here at Genesee Park. Four in the pits, three out here on display. And uh, museum's a little empty today, but we got plenty of boats down by the lake. But it's there all year round. What I like about it, people think about hydroplane racing this time of year, but, you know, when you get that itch in the middle of, you know, February, you can say, you know what, let's go down to the museum uh, this weekend and, and see what's in there and what they're doing. It's- oh, that's that's a great time to come down to, to be honest. My docents are a little a little lonely at that type of year, <laughs> and, and you will get the greatest tour, and you will learn so much if you come down in January, February, March. Yeah, and it is a great place. Um, but you're also an author, too. I want to make sure we mention that. Thank you very much. Several books on hydroplane racing, but the most recent one that seems to be barely able to be kept in print <laughs> is about Myra Slovak, the, uh, and a lot of people know him as the Flying Czech, and they know this much of the story. Oh, yeah, he raced hydroplanes after he escaped the Iron Curtain, and then maybe it falls off after that. But, man, this is an interesting story. So uh, people should look up your brand-new book, A Race to Freedom. A Race to Freedom, the Myra Slovak story. Uh, flying off the shelves, I can honestly say it is uh, a bestseller. Uh, look for it on Amazon. Look for it at Target, Fred Meyer, uh, all of the wherever better books are sold. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, we try to get together every year and talk about the seafair and, and racing, and we've done uh, things about the origins of seafair in the past. Uh, I think we talked about pioneers once or twice. Uh, different innovations, safety, power plants that have changed over the years. I kind of like to, today to go uh, maybe talk about some of the great drivers and boats that have dominated Seafair over the years. And, you know, for folks listening today and that will be listening to the race uh, on Kixie Radio later today, you know, some of the this last few years, spectators have seen J. Michael Kelly and Jimmy Shane battle each other for the Albert Lee Appliance Cup in what has been really close finishes and tension-filled uh, races and and throw in Andrew Tate, a brand new racer, relatively, uh, to that mix. And, uh, man, he's interrupted that rivalry. But, man, those guys have had close as close of finishes as we've seen at Seafair oh, or not? I mean, a- absolutely. Uh, between those three guys, you get some really tremendous racing. And from my perspective, when, when people come to the museum, what we are best known for is restoring boats. And we work really hard, and we restore these great boats, and they're beautiful. But for my money, it's... It's the people, it's the guys, it's the drivers that really make this sport special. And all three of those fellas, uh, Jim Shane and uh, Andrew and, of, of course, Jay Michael, are very good friends and have grown up around the sport. I can honestly remember when um, my kids 
were 10 and 11 years old racing against Andrew, who was the, the big veteran at, I think, 15. Um, <laughs> and uh, just to tell you real quick, we, uh, we went to the Nationals at Moses Lake, and Andrew was the odds-on favorite to win, and my son Shane upset him. And uh, I wouldn't say that I've ever seen a uh, unlimited hydroplane driver cry, but it was pretty close. Andrew was was pretty upset when when we won the the nationals and kicked him off the podium. But uh, it's been neat to watch these guys grow up and really come together as racers. And you can tell they trust each other. Um, there are plenty of people out there running fast that you really don't want to be next to when you go into the the turn because you're not sure they're going to hold their lane. All three of these guys have absolute uh, trust and belief in each other, and that's fun to watch. Well, that is a cool part of racing is what you say, that when they are in a corner so tight, I mean, it must be like driving through a car wash when you're the actual pilot. You've driven these <laughs> unlimited, right? I mean, what is that first turn like? But those guys also, you said they have to trust each other to do that every several times a, a race. Each several weekend, times a and lap. Then several times a year. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that trust, that camaraderie, does it come from knowing each other so well? It, Outside of the race course? It, it really does, and it also comes from having experience running with uh, the other guy. You know, if you are, um, if, if you're in lane two and you're going into the turn just, you know, a boat length behind the guy in lane one and maybe a boat length behind the guy in lane three, you're, you're sort of in a tunnel there, you have to believe that those guys are going to hold their lanes because the lanes are not that wide. There's um, no lines painted on the lake. No, no, they're not. Uh, a lane is, is technically the, the width of the boat plus 10 feet, and the boats are about 13 feet wide. So you're trying to keep this uh, 190, 200-mile-an-hour boats bouncing across the water within this 23-foot lane. And uh, it's, it's not like in cars where if maybe you slide out, you're going to bump each other and, and rub some paint off. If you slide out into a rooster tail, that's enough force that's going to put you over on your back at 180 miles an hour, and that is painful and expensive and goes a long way towards ruining your day. So <laughs> when when you dive in there, you have to really believe if, if, if J. Michael's in lane one that he's going to hold the buoy line and he's not going to come out and encroach on your lane. Um, and these guys have done it enough. They've, they've been racing together in all sorts of different classes. They don't just race the Unlimiteds or, or haven't just raced the Unlimiteds their whole career. These guys have raced together in lots of different classes and they they know and trust each other. Now, uh, the last couple of years, like I said, uh, they've been as close of finishes and racing throughout the day uh, on a Seafair Sunday as we've seen. And um, I'm thinking back to maybe it was just a few, J. Michael Kelly, and there was calls and penalties and Andrew Tate hit a boo, you know, and so you think, oh, who's really ahead? And uh, they're racing as hard as they can, even though they think, I think I hit him or I think I hit that buoy. I'm going to still put my foot in it. And it has been so exciting to watch, even though maybe on the way home we hear about 10 minutes later, oh, that was a penalty. I thought something happened there. But, man, has it been exciting. Um, that's cool well, about racing, but it's also a little, you know, breaks well, they're, your they're, they're, <laughs> spirit a little. There are two things that come up there, and, and one is – um, our sport has had some some issues and has struggled with past um, with um, timeliness of calling penalties and 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 I'm not pointing my finger at anybody. It just I've been that official. I've I've you know I've I've been in the turn and tried to decide. Gee, did he bear out or did he come in? But um, it is something that that we'd like to get better um, and we'd like to do better with. But the thing that I that I do want to point out, and as a historian and as the director of the museum, I probably shouldn't be saying this. <laughs> Careful now. The competition that we see now is so 
incredibly close. I mean, back in the day, um, you know, people like to talk about, oh, the slow-mos, and back when the slow-mos ran, it was 1950, and I was there, and it, you know, in 1952, we had a final heat where only one boat finished. Um, only two boats, you know, made it through the first lap, and the, the second boat broke down on the second of eight laps. So there was one boat running by itself <laughs> for, for a long time, for a long, too, because long those were longer time. races than and, going slower. Uh, you know, we we tend to remember things with this beautiful kind of golden halo around them. Yeah. Not necessarily true. What what we're seeing right now, what we're seeing at Seafair this weekend, is really some of the most amazing, best, closest racing that we've ever seen in this sport. Well, let's go backwards in time a little bit. If we jump back, you know, if we look at the, I don't know, from the mid-90s just into the 21st century, too, uh, Dave Vilwalk's name is on the Seafair books. I think it's 10, <laughs> I think 10 times he's won Seafair. He drove for the Elam, the Budweiser, the Pico American Dream, and he holds the all-time record, right? Yes, for he does. lifetime victories in unlimited yes. hydroplane racing. This guy came out of seemingly nowhere to the fans because all of a sudden he starts racing and he's winning. But he had a background in racing and crewing these uh, unlimiteds. But man, when he got into the driver's seat, what a dominant force Dave Vilwalk was. Well, well, Dave was a, a, a very special guy in the sport in that he came up through the ranks as a, a limited driver, but also as a, uh, a, a crew chief. He built his own motors. He built his own boats. Uh, he built his own propellers. And when he got into the cockpit, he had a huge advantage over some of the guys that were really much, pretty much just straight on drivers. Because there's normally a translation process where a driver goes out and the boat does something that he doesn't like. And he comes in and he tells the crew chief, well, you know, going into the turn, the boat kind of makes a, a little bounce. All right, well, what type of bounce? Well, a bounce. Does it bounce on the left sponsor or the right sponsor? Does it, <laughs> well, I don't know. It just sort of bounces. Um, and depending on how the boat's responding determines what you're going to do to fix it. For Vilwak, he would go out, the boat wouldn't be quite right, and he would just come in and fix it. And he wouldn't have to try and explain to another person what was going on, what he thought was wrong. He could just fix it. So he was kind of a step ahead um, and and Dave was a good driver. He was an amazing setup guy. He could he could run a boat and and dial it in, and uh, <laughs> he was so fast it was almost wasn't fair. Because it seemed he, like it for a while. He yeah. did such a good job setting up his boats, um, and was so smart about it. Yeah. Well, let's go further back. Okay. Because I want to hit a lot of names, and we won't if we talk too much. Uh, a little further back, Chip Hanauer and Jim Cropfeld are, of course, names on the Seafair winners list. Uh, these guys also had a rivalry in the Budweiser and, I suppose, whatever boat Chip was driving, whether it be Atlas, Circus Circus, Miller American. Those two boats, um, that Budweiser, by the way, that Cropfeld drove before it was a turbine, uh-huh. was like, we called it the juggernaut on the beach because it had a different kind of V12, right? That is, uh, he's talking about the Griffin V12 uh, Budweiser. That's the boat I drive most. Um, I don't have it here this weekend, and it's kind of sad because I've gotten so used. It makes the Uh, most noise, if I can just say from a fan's point of view. It makes the most noise. It is, um, I've driven both the Atlases that Chip drove um, during that period and, uh, and the Juggernaut. And that Juggernaut is such an amazing superior boat, which really, it, it does... It, it makes me respect Chip a whole lot more to go out in, in his 70, um, in his 82 Atlas and drive it and think, wow, he kept beating, not just, not just, um, 
Cropfield, but also Dean Chenoweth, who had better boats. This is, this is a nice boat, but it's nothing like that Budweiser. And, and that's what made Chip so kind of magical. He could take a boat and win with it. It didn't have to be the fastest boat. Um, Chip learned from, I would probably say learned from Bill Muncy, that you're not racing boats. You're racing people. You're racing another mind. And if you can do something to fluster that other mind, to get that other mind off its game, to get him thinking about paying you back because you bumped into him you know, in the parking lot on the way in or, <laughs> or that type of thing, um, Bill was the absolute master at, at getting people off their game plan, and Chip learned that. Um, and, and Chip used to kind of, I, I don't want to say anything bad about Jim Cropfield because I, I truly cared about him and respected him, but Chip could get Jim so pissed off that he would make stupid mistakes and lose races, and that wasn't that. Well, wa- oh, go ahead. Well, that's the way it is in a lot of sports. Like tennis players, there's some guys that could just have the edge on another guy when they meet in the final. Mm-hmm. Same with golfers. Um, same with the NASCAR drivers. And, and say, if I'm in the front row with so and so, I I can know how to make you make a mistake. And, and I can be in your mirrors and make you break wrong or shift wrong. And, Absolutely, and you see it in football too. And that was, you know, you you think about, well, someone who's moved on to another team. You think about Richard Sherman and the way he could get in a quarterback's head, and either keep the quarterback from throwing to him into his zone, or when he did, to make a mistake. And drivers are like that too. You can really sort of, um, you can really sort of get them wound up and get them angry. And when they're angry, they make mistakes. Well, you know, so let's keep going backwards. The reason we. Unfortunately, un- the reason we got Jim Cropfeld and Chip Hanauer in the Budweiser and the Atlas was because Bill Muncy and Dean Chinowith both passed away right within a year or so. I think one yes. year of each other. But those guys, uh, man, did they dominate the sport for a while too? Like you said, when when Bernie Little had that uh, Griffin Budweiser built, he was trying to beat Muncy, who'd been dominating for several years, right? Yes. The- so give me something about those two boats and when those. Those two guys hooked up for a couple of years. Well, th- those are two of the, the, the main boats in our collection, and very often we do a show with those where we, we run them. Um, the, the Atlas, we are running this weekend. Um, we call it the, the Blue Blaster. The Blue Blaster, yeah. The one um, with the, the we're, uh, cab over that really was the first really, really successful one, right? The, yeah, the, the first cab over to win a Gold Cup was the Miss U.S., but this was the... The first cab over. It started dominating. That totally dominated Everybody the sport. else said, yeah, I'm building one too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, Chip is lucky enough to be driving that most of this weekend. If if Chip can't drive it, then I get to fill in. Um, and then we have the pay and pack and uh, Ken Muscatel, Mike Hansen, And um, I don't know if, if one of those guys can't do it and Chip drives, then I might swap over to the pay and pack. But, but those are the boats we're running. That, uh, that Atlas was so light on its feet. It was a very light boat. It it did not have a lot of top end, and that's one of the things that was different between it and the Budweiser. Um, that boat probably didn't go much over 165 miles an hour. Really? But boy, could you get there fast, um, and you could keep that speed up in the turn. That that Budweiser, um, they, they went for a world speed record, and they tipped it over at 217 once. That's a really fast boat. I've seen into an exhibition. I can see 180 in it like that. No kidding. Um, but, um, but it doesn't get there as, you know, if, if Chip and I come off the, or we'll go back to Bill and Dean, if they came off the corner together, um, that Atlas would be to 165 within a hundred yards off the corner. 
the bud may take a mile before it gets up to its 185. Well, you know, by the time you've had that speed advantage for three quarters of the straightaway, you're far enough ahead and you've also made some really crummy water for the second place boat to have to run in. So the it's just, it's, the boats have different strategies. Boy, that, I'm neat to hear you describe it that way because that really made for exciting uh, watching on the beach when one guy jumps off of that corner with so much acceleration and then the other boat comes and finally pulls him in at the end yeah. of the straightaway and depending on the race course, whether it's a long straightaway or a lot of wide curves like Tri-Cities is a mm-hmm. much wider uh, uh, track. Man, that, that that made for exciting. And, and you mentioned, oh, go ahead. Well, just another thing about those two boats. The Griffin is the only boat uh, that is loud enough that you can hear it when you're driving a Merlin. And and both Chip and, and Bill would say, you know, I can get out in front. And then I just hear that Griffin coming, and I just hope I can hold it off and hope I can hold it off. And sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Wow, that's funny because it... That boat, when there were other five other boats, Merlin's racing, and the the Griffin was out, you could tell <laughs> when it was accelerating. And you know, I love the sound but, of that one. Let me just make one, you know, a point here. The Merlin is um, one thousand six hundred and fifty cubic inches, so that's a big motor. The Griffin is two thousand two hundred and forty, so six hundred more cubic inches in in one motor. And that's why we've been talking about it as such a dominant boat when it raced. So were those originally in used in fighter uh, airplanes or bombers or what exactly? In World well, War they were II used or... in both. Oh, okay. Um, the, the Griffin spent much of its time uh, in the four-engine Shackleton bomber, which, to be really honest, the Shackleton was used by the RAF all the way up through Gulf War I. Um, so that was a very, that engine was in service for a long time. The Griffin also went into um, a, uh, a an English carrier-based fighter um, and into some late variants of uh, the Spitfire. So that that engine was uh, it's not as rare as we think it is. Hmm. It just was not surplused at the same time that the Merlins. And Merlins were surplused in in their thousands at the end of World War II. The Griffin didn't get surplused until much, much, much later. So they were harder to get. We are talking this Seafair Sunday with David Williams, the executive director of the Unlimited Hydroplane and Race Built Museum in Kent. Uh, he's also an author of the Race to of Race to Freedom, the Myra Slovak story. Go out and read that book. Uh, Keep it not only exciting racing stories, but just a fantastic story about Myra Slovak's life. Um, where do we leave off? Oh, we were talking about Bill Muncie and uh, Dean Chenoweth. Uh, Bill Muncie he got that blue blaster in sort of a deal, the tail end of which was, okay, I'll take over a team and I'm getting this winged wonder, right? The pay, yes. pay and pack, that was a dominant boat is 72, three and four, three, four and three, five. Three, four and five. And this is a boat you guys recently restored. And so uh, several guys drove that, right? That, But that didn't take off initially, <laughs> well, but it, it took a while to tool that baby in and then it just won everything. Well, it um, the first season was driven by Mickey Remond. And it, it did do quite well that first season. It didn't win the Gold Cup because it broke a propeller, but it, it ended up winning national championship and being a, a, a really, um, everyone kind of knew that, oh, there's the future. You know, that, and that was the first honeycomb boat that was built. Um, then in 74, uh, George Henley took over, um, and, and George just was one of the nicest guys, but one of the best drivers. He was... Um, George never beat himself, 
and and there are lots of guys that go out there and have really really fast equipment, and they can end up beating themselves. They they jump the gun, they hook the boat, they miss a buoy, they bump into a competitor, um, and and George was was a great driver, but he never dug a hole for himself. Then uh, George retired, and Jim McCormick drove the boat in for the first half of the 75 season and didn't have much luck with it. So um, he was replaced. They, they convinced George to come back out of retirement. George took over the pay and pack for the second half of the 75 season, salvaged the year, and ended up winning the national championship. Then Muncie bought the boat. Um, the um, Bill Muncie had been driving for the Shaneth family and sponsored by Atlas Van Lines. The Shaneth family retired at the end of the 75 season, um, and Atlas came to Muncie and said, we'd like to keep racing, but, you know, we need a boat. Uh, <laughs> at that same time, Herensberger had won uh, several national championships, a couple gold cups, a lot of races, and, and Dave is a very, um, he's a neat guy, he's really pragmatic, and if he's done what he wanted to do, I've done what I wanted to do. Why am I going to spend, you know, I, I, I race in the sport. He started in 63. He ended in 75. He spent 12 years and he won all the races he wanted to win. He'd set the records he wanted to set and time to move on and maybe go play with racehorses. So Dave was selling off all his equipment. Bill put together a deal to buy the equipment, keep the Atlas sponsorship, move the Atlas sponsorship onto that pay and pack hull. Um, and he went out and darn near won the 76 gold cup, um, lost it because the wing came off of the boat for the final heat, um, but ended up winning the national championship in that boat as well. So he had, um, a lot of guys had really good luck in that boat. The, um, the pay and pack. So if we go to that yeah. boat, when it was the pay and pack, um, it dominated, it had some of the best races here on Lake Washington against the Budweiser, uh, which was a previous <laughs> hull that was a pay and pack, right? I mean, yes. for a while, that was like four years of that hull of as the pay and pack and then as the Budweiser and then battling the new pay and pack. Man, those were some great races. You know, if you if you go back, actually you could go all the way back to you know, the start, the, the rebirth of our sport at the end of World War II, that whole post-war era, you can divide it up into short dynasties of three or four years where an idea came along um, and that idea was so good, it dominated the sport until, frankly, until a better mind came up with a better idea. Um, and there were drivers that were lucky enough to to be in the position to take advantage of that domination. But it, you know, you can go with, you know, from the slow mos to the thriftways to the Bartals to, you know, pay and pack and Budweiser on up. And and each period of two or three years of domination is really fueled by some giant leap of technology in the race boats themselves. Uh, I gotta, we gotta keep moving. Cause like okay. you said <laughs> at the beginning, we're going to run out of this half hour. I, I kind of want to mention the, the fifties and or the sixties, maybe in one go, but yeah, Bill Muncie, there was a long stretch there where he didn't win anything because other people, like you said, were dominating, um, in the early sixties, the, the Miss Bardall did sort of that same thing. We mentioned three years in a row yeah. of that pay and pack dominating. Those guys not only won a lot of races, didn't they set some record for like heats finished or something? They had a good team, right? I mean, they... that That's a really good point. And we tend to, to look at motorsports as a single effort. Oh, it's the driver. It's Bill Muncie or it's, you know, it's 
Jeff Gordon or, you know, we think of motorsports as the driver, but the driver really only is as good as the team that's prepared the equipment. And uh, the Thriftway had a phenomenal uh, winning streak of, I'm not sure exactly how many heats they ran without a mechanical breakdown. And then Bartle had a very similar streak. And those were those were fantastic teams that were preparing really, really good equipment. That leads to success, the, the team uh, effort. And that's what takes time, too, because... Um, like you said, Eagle Electric, Dave Herensburg, he wasn't a winner right at first. No. The Miss Madison, who runs the home street now, mm-hmm. they were not a winner right away. Guys like Elam were not winners right away. They built and built a better team and grabbed guys from crews. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's part of racing, right? So any what, famous guys that come out of a crew that you say, oh, well, this guy's now famous because he worked on so many great boats. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back to a, another real quick football analogy. Pete Carroll has this this thing that he says, you know, can you win the game in the first quarter? No. Can you win the second quarter? No. When do you win the game? You win the game in the fourth quarter. But racing is different than that. You win races in February. <laughs> you know, you win races <laughs> in January, February, March in the winter when your friends, when your competitors are, you know, maybe watching football or, you know, enjoying uh, a, a vacation to somewhere warm and sunny when you're out in the shop and you're building the motors and you're building the propellers and you're preparing for the season. Um, it is that preparation and that attention to detail that's, that ends up winning you the races. Yeah. So Bill Muncy, he won like eight, I think, seafarers over the years. The first ones with that first Thriftway yes. in like 57 or so, there was a Thriftway and then into the, what became Miss Century 21, there were a couple different varieties of Thriftways, right? Well, there were, there were three Thriftways and a, a fourth book called Thriftway 2. Oh yeah. Um, the first Thriftway was built in 55, and it was destroyed in 57, so it's sort of a short life. Second Thriftway had even a shorter life. It was built in 58 and destroyed in 58. Uh, lost the rudder here at Seattle and ended up hitting the Coast Guard. Oh, uh, yes. Um, and by the way, at the museum a few years back, we had a reunion of all of the surviving members of the crew that were on not the hydroplane, but on the Coast Guard cutter. We had all of those guys together, and they shared stories about what it was like to be torpedoed by Bill Muncy and the Oh, my sink. gosh. Um. <laughs> but how about that? So that those crew members move when, like when, uh, now I already forget his name, the guy who, Willard Rhodes, who yes. owned the Thriftway stores, yes. decided to get out of race. Did those crew members go as a group and dominate another team or did they split up and somebody like Ole Bart will say, I want that guy on my team? Well, it, it, a little of both. Um, you know, Jack Ramsey was the crew chief and, and Jack continued to work in the sport and he never saw the success that, uh, that he had uh, with the thrift. One of the guys though that, that was, you mentioned Bartol, the crew chief of the Bartol was a man named Leo Vandenberg. And when the Bardall team broke up, Leo went on and he ended up working for Budweiser for years and years and years. And even though the technology had moved on, he was sort of a, I don't want to say a mascot because that's demeaning, but he was sort of like the, the spiritual guru that kind of say, you know, I've been uh, there, I've done this, we can, you know. Crew chief emeritus? Yeah, that would, that would, that <laughs> would work. Hey Dave, we're going to run out of time. So I want to make sure we talk about the museum. So what's in the future of the past? So you guys have been working on, am I right? The 79 Squire shop? We are working on the 79 Squire shop. Um, we hope, I, I, I don't want to say this too loud, but I guess people are listening. We hope to have it out running next year, a year from now. Um, we, our goal is to have that boat on the water. And then after that, boy, we have a lot of different stuff planned. Um, Joe Little has been kind enough to give us the T1, the first turbine Budweiser, we have a running engine, we've got a gearbox, and we need to get that boat restored. 
Um, we've got the Circus Circus. We have just... Uh, Is this the Circus Circus that was built the same time the one that as you that like. Squire yes. Shop? So yes. they were twin sort of boats, but built a little differently, right? The Circus had four panels of honeycomb laid flat that made the bottom, but the rest of the framing on that boat was wood. And uh, that boat, by the way, was originally designed uh, for Bernie Little to be the Griffin Budweiser, but Bernie never could quite make up his mind and pull the trigger, so they ended up building it for the Circus Circus team. But, yeah, we've got the, the, the Squire Shop that should be done next year. We have a circus that matches that one. We have the T, T1. Uh, we're, we're also working, um, shouldn't say this too loud yet because we're a couple years off, but we're working on getting the Tahoe Miss, uh, Myra Slovak's Tahoe Miss, uh, from 66 restored. And we're working with a private owner who has the 1971 Miss Madison. So there are a lot of boats coming through the shop. And all legendary boats, too. All legendary boats, and they all need volunteers. So if you've ever wanted to work on a hydroplane, come on down to the museum. We'll be happy to put you to work. Yeah, and you, they, the museum also needs support. This is a nonprofit, and these things are expensive to repair and restore and, <laughs> and find parts. And then, like you said, it takes time and volunteers to put that all together. Hey, thank you so much for the time you've given us today, David. We've been talking with David Williams from the Hydroplane and Race Boat Museum, also author of the new book, A Race to Freedom, The Myra Slovak Story. you got to look for that online or at the museum. Thank you so much in the museum. In Kent, thunderboats.org, right, online? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you so much. Hey, live Seafair coverage can be heard on AM 880 KIXI this year, so you can listen on the beach or the log boom with your radio. So uh, join us then. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.